Hello and welcome to the special podcast created by the School of Human and Health Sciences here at Huddersfield University for AHP's Day. Paramedic lecturer Dave Fletcher and consultant physiotherapist Rachel Moses discuss all things AHP, including the objectives of the social movement AHP's Day, their experiences working in the Nightingale Hospital in London and AHP research. We jump straight into the discussion surrounding what we would like to get out of the social movement. Uh, and a quick reminder to join us on Twitter at Research is Ace. And it was something that always sticks with me because, you know, whether you're a paramedic or a physiotherapist, people kind of think they know what you do, but there's so much diversity within our professions now and there's so many opportunities for us. And, you know, we are independent practitioners in our own right, you know, we're degree level qualified. And I think sometimes the misconceptions around the allied health professions are such that it maybe like devalues us. So it's using this opportunity, this horrendous, terrible time to really get something positive out of it and showcase what we do and what why we love it, why we chose to be an HP, why we, you know, we're just we we went, you know, didn't get the grades to do medicine, which is what I you know, what I get a lot. Um, you know, we actually chose it as a career choice and um and why it's important. So yeah, that that's really what I would love to get out. I couldn't agree more with some of those with some <laughs> of those, you know, that those comments that you've made. Um why is it that you decided to join the, the, this profession? Oh, that's a great question. Um I actually um I actually was going to do medicine and had a place at St James's um in in Leeds and I done a gap year and worked with um went to Japan and worked wow. with victims of the Hiroshima bomb and that was still alive and they had quite, you know, horrific um long lasting um you know illnesses and physical disabilities because of that. And just seeing the physios at work over there in like I've never I've never experienced work with physical therapists before. I was just absolutely awestruck. And even though the language was a barrier, I mean, I had to learn basic Japanese, but it's a really hard language. Wow. Especially for a, jo- especially for a Geordie, <laughs> you know. Um, just, on that, just on that note, we've got this, this live stream and we've got a Geordie and we've got somebody from Wolverhampton. Like, there could be nobody. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry for interrupting. Yeah. Um, I'll try not to slip into the... Um, to the, <laughs> the twang. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I was just absolutely moved. And there was one um, patient in particular, one one man that I'll vividly remember even to this day and the impact that they had on his life and thought, wow, this is a career that I could really see myself doing. And, um, and yeah, so um, so went to the University of Hertfordshire to study physiotherapy. And here I am now. And I was went in thinking I was going to be rehab, thinking I was going to be sports, I was going to get my hands on loads of, like, you know, semi-naked bodies every day I'm not gonna lie <laughs> and then and then I had an undergraduate placement crazily at the Royal Brompton in intensive care and I had another like massive light bulb moment in my career as a student where I thought oh my god I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life and I, it did, I did and I followed down that respiratory intensive care path and never really look back. I mean, I did all my rotations and things, you know, I've got experience, but, but yeah, so, um, so I've had two kind of moments in my career that were definitely defining, both at undergraduate level, I have to say. Just to, to share my experience, I, uh, so my, my dad had a, 
uh, a brain tumour when I was about 16, I think it was. So we had to engage with ambulance services um, in, in quite some some depth. And um, the fantastic part about it all, that, and the part that really struck me was how um, somebody can come in and, and, and create calm from the chaos almost. But then the other thing that I can remember as clear as day now is how collaborative how collaborative they were in in the, in designing the care really for my for my dad. Somebody that can come in and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Everything's going to be okay, and this is who we're going to work with. And we're going to talk about the Nightingale in in a short while. But the fantastic part about the NHS and what makes me really proud to have to to you know contribute towards it is the fact that you can get just strangers that that wouldn't have known each other previously, being able to, to work so closely together for the benefit of the patient. And that's what struck me about paramedic practice. That's what made me want to get into it, to be able to contribute towards, you know, being able to care for one person, but working as part of a team of hundreds, perhaps thousands, you know, in a chronic condition, to be able to deliver the best possible care. And I think that's really something that we do really well as AHPs. Absolutely. And I think we've probably been guilty of working in silos for many years and probably even so much so now. And, um, you know, if I give like ODPs as an example, um, you know, they're kind of, you know, um, hidden away in the depths of the operating departments and the recovery side of things. But um, actually there's, you know, during the pandemic, ODPs came into their own, their advanced airway skills, resuscitation skills, emergency medicine skills. Um, and, you know, specifically in my role at the Nightingale, like, you know, the anesthetist wouldn't, you know, put a line in without having an ODP there um, because it was such a hostile environment. So, yeah, I think, again, it's, it's, it's looking at the role of an HP, what the extended role may be, but also just what that role is and the added you know, the added impact it gives to the MD team. Um, and, you know, you've, we've seen some collaborative working with paramedics and occupational therapists and look at the power of that. Look at the power of, uh, you know, having a paramedic go out and assess a, a patient at home, at home that's fallen or that's frail and, um, and you know, potentially avoiding the hospital admission or potentially being able to start, like, you know, some, some kind of rehab or some kind of therapy in the community from that. Um, and the same with respiratory physiotherapists and respiratory consultants. We've seen more, um, you know, going out with paramedic crews. So, yeah, it's um, the world's our oyster, really, isn't it, when we start to collaborate? Absolutely. So how, how do you think we can improve that? And I think, you, you know, you touched, just from my own point of view, you touched upon something that uh, a little bit earlier. A lot of people don't really have a good understanding about what we can do and the spectrum of the skills that we can bring is 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 huge so so how can we improve that to increase collaboration for the for the benefit of of the patient i mean really we've got a question whether it can be done at undergraduate level to start with so just to tell a story um i had and you know i can't even remember how that ended up in my clinic in my consultant role in, in lancashire um and i had a paramedic student with me in clinic and she came just for a couple of clinics and I don't know whether she'd seen us on Twitter or somewhere, or they had this module where they had to spend time with another healthcare professional. Um, and most of the time, she said the paramedics would choose, like, you know, um, a doctor or, um, like, go to A&E. Um, so she reached out to us and she came in. And to put a very long story short, I had a new patient in clinic who had had a horrific 
um, like on-site accident that involved, um, without going into too much detail, um, like a degloving injury um, that required an amputation on the scene and had a spinal injury and the patient was conscious throughout and they did need to obviously intubate him for, um, you know, to, to stabilise him before trans- uh, transfer. And she was at his head on the whole time and talking to him as the paramedic student and reassure him and being that common influence you've just described. And, you know, that deeply moved her as a student in that experience. And this new patient in my clinic was that gentleman. And of all the days, of all of the years, of all of the months, this, this patient could have been in my clinic and he'd been rearranged two times as well because he was in a rehab facility and he was coming in because he was spinal cord injury and he had a weak cough, so I was sick for that. And she was there and I was I was kind of saying, Oh, you know, this is um you don't get much time in clinic, do you? So I was giving a really quick brief, um, you know, um traumatic amputation. I just she didn't even click until she seen him and he started going through his story. And the power of her being able to see that patient again in clinic and like connect with him on that level, it was so emotional. Like everyone was in tears at the end and um she'll just never forget that. And she just she said to me that moment in time. We should be doing more of this. We should, as students, be going out and seeing how what other healthcare professionals do. So, and like, do we do that? Like, within your profession, do you do that? Within physio, you maybe do that at undergraduate level because you're kind of forced to a little bit because most teams now are multidisciplinary. But thinking across your age teams, do we reach out to either the smaller groups or the groups we don't know about? I don't think we do. I think we just stick within like physios would stick within dietitians or teas, speech and language therapists. So yeah, I think that's how we do it. I think we started undergraduate level. I think we give people permission to say, actually, you know, um, you're allowed to go and spend some time. It doesn't have to be a paramedic. It doesn't have to be an ED doctor or a nurse. Um, Yeah, and just use this time. I think the thing when people qualify is they're so quick to start getting up the ladder. Yes. When they're a junior or a senior, um, a band five, I hate calling people bandons, but, um, you know, they're so quick to, like, progress, and it's like, slow down. You've got the rest of your life. Use every opportunity. So I say to our um, juniors, like, you go and spend time with that other person. You know, you haven't got management responsibilities yet. and Maybe we just all need to be a bit more like that. Sorry, I've talked a lot there. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, I, I'm inclined to to agree. I think there's. Um, I don't necessarily think that push, by the way. I don't think it comes, um, you know, solely from from the cohort of professionals either. I think you know, with there's always that big push, isn't there, for a, for a, a flow and a turnover of staff because that's what the service needs. And I think at times we do the, you know, the honourable, the noble thing, and say, okay, I can step into that position often at the detriment of your own development at times. So I think it, it can be very, very tricky. Um, so what, what's the best example of integrated care that comes to mind for you? The best what, sorry? The best example of that integrated collaborative care between oh. AHPs for you. That's putting you on the spot a little bit. Um, no, the best example of integrated care, well, obviously I'm a respiratory um, clinician by background. And we have some incredible examples of integrated care either in the intensive care unit. So if we think in the most critical um, of situations where um, we have a whole MDT and it's what makes the ITU, you know, what it is. So we have obviously doctors, we have consultant intensivists, we have trainees, um, 
we have nurses, we have advanced critical care practitioners now who are generally from a you know qualified background, whether generally tending to be nurses or uh, physios, but they then have a whole different job role. Yeah. Um, and have advanced skills as well. So, for example, airways, putting arterial lines in, some form tracheostomies, which is amazing. Um, then you have your physiotherapists, your OTs, your SLTs, your DTs, your psychologists, support workers, therapy assistants. So I think critical care is a great example of that. And then we've got the other spectrum in terms of, you know, we actually call them integrated care teams in the community with, um, with you know, um, again, consultants, nurses, physios, OTs, speech and language therapists. So, yeah, I think in respiratory, we're really fortunate, but it's been hard work and it's been dry. And even now, again, so relating to the Nightingale, when we were setting up an ICU, and I said, look, we need a lead dietitian. We need a dietitian. We're going to be seeing critically ill more patients. We need a dietitian. The nutritional um, delivery is so important. And, you know, people at the top just didn't understand why. And they were like, why do you need a dietitian in the ICU? You know, this is in a pandemic time. And, the, you know, having to explain why, constantly explain why was really difficult. So, yeah, I think we've got some good examples. Yeah, I'm amazed within practice um, of how often that I can see it. I mean, one of the questions I had down here was what, what, what are some of the biggest misconceptions of AHPs? And we've kind of already covered that. It's that um, not having the full ability or, or knowledge to be able to, to know what skills that we can and can't offer and how fundamental that they are to um, you know significant packages of care, in, in my view. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose that's one of the things that this day is really important for, isn't it? To be able to share those skills and to share those mm-hmm. messages. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've touched upon the Nightingale a few times now, so we might as well jump straight into it. So um, so your, your role at the Nightingale was um, operational and clinical leadership of allied health professionals, um, which included the design, implementation, development and delivery of an AHP model. And how, how many weeks did we have to do it now? Was it, was it about three, four weeks or something like that from scratch? Or? Um, well, it was actually about seven days. Um, so, so from the moment we got down, I think I got the, the kind of call nod on the Thursday evening. Obviously, I was in a full-time job, um, so I had to pack my office up and um, get to Newcastle and then um, get down to London. I think I was there by the Saturday, Friday night, Saturday. Thursday, um, proper day was on the Sunday. And um, this was obviously at the height of the pandemic in March. And um, like you mentioned, just people coming together that didn't know each other, but from very similar backgrounds. I mean, I have to say, so the majority were ex-military. So, um, you know, I've been, I've had, you know, military background. Um, and we're very used to being put into situations like that where you have to, you know, create, develop, form a team, get that level of trust and just crack on with it. And, I mean, I knew what an intensive care team looked like from an HP perspective and knew what the vision would be and knew what the patients that were coming in. And, you know, the the Nightingale was only open for about four weeks. You know, we've we've got a small trickle of patients first. There were six patients, then we upscaled to, say, 14. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, at the the most, there was 40, 42, I think, in terms of... But a 42-bedded intensive care unit is a big intensive care unit no matter where you are and um we needed to make sure that every single patient that came into that hospital 
had the same level of care as they would if they were in a big London teaching hospital or in Birmingham or wherever else. So um, that meant really, you know, excellent age, please. And you've probably seen from an ambulance perspective, there was an ambulance um, depot outside and the coordination between the retrieval team, the transfer teams, the paramedics, the crews, um, and that was obviously taking people out as well, um, you know, and just how everyone came to the team. So, yeah, all of the pathways throughout had HPs embedded into the pathways, um, you know, with London Ambulance Service and with St. John mm. as well. So, I mean, yeah. everybody was fantastic, weren't they? And um, so, so I was there a little bit of time before you. Um, I was the chief of staff for ops. But one of the great things for me that I that I saw, which was kind of really took me back, was the prevalence of AHPs in those different leadership roles throughout the area. So, you know, my, my face lit up when I saw you walk through the door. So I was like, yes, fantastic. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like... Um, it just shows the kind of journey that AHPs have been on, isn't it? The fact that now it's it's that you know from that point of view, it's getting recognised. It, it needs to get better, and, and I'm no doubt it will get better. But but we're starting to get there. We're making some really great progress. So so what were your overall reflections of the project? Because uh, you know when I kind of um, when I pulled out and, and I took a, a bit of time to take a breath and to have a think about it, I I had some some quite staggering reflections. But but what were yours? I mean, it's I I think I probably haven't given myself that time to be fair I think I then went straight into a brand new role at the Brompton wow. um, um at the end of May so um but I think my reflections at this moment in time are how London were amazing and you know I say London because I'm very close to people in Birmingham and they had you know they they had an equally really tough experience at the very beginning um how London responded how it was a pan-London response and Nightingale was part of that, mm -hmm. how the initial clinical model was just not fit for purpose, if you like, and how it had to be. I mean, it was 40 different versions of something until it got to a stage where it was the right model yeah. and in which time the, you know, the, the, the curve started to flatten. I think that the way people were just pulled from organisations that some people had ties but not everyone um was spectacular but i think they're just the real passion to just get people just put their heads down and got on with it i don't know what you thought but it was just this drive there was so much media hype i think we need to remember that staff including yourself including myself were working in teams that they you know adored that they felt guilt leaving their teams that they had working within organisations that either respected them to the point they said, okay, you go and do this, you be our one that goes, or they were in private practice, furloughed workers, for example. But they said, you know what it is, I'm not going to stay at home and be furloughed, I'm going to put myself out there. So this included, this. the ODPs were classic for this, you know, yeah. who worked in private hospitals or who elective surgery weren't, wasn't going on, and the private um, MSK physios, who'd done all the proning and things at night. Um, so yeah, and I think, and we had paramedics working in the hospital as well. So um, again, in, they were just like, whatever role, because we yeah. obviously seen a reduction in the number of emergency calls because people weren't going out and having accidents and, you know, you know, falling off hills and things. So, um, so yeah, we had paramedics as part of the workforce. So I think that was, it was like, uh, these are my skills, do what you want with me, put, put you where you want. And then it was, 
the education team at the Nightingale, so Julie Coombs and her team, mm-hmm. like the way they mobilise the simulation training specific to people's skill set. So you could have a paramedic and an ODP in there and say, okay, this is what your role might be. So we're going to train you up into this environment with this type of kid and that's what your role is going to be. And it was just that flexibility, I think. Yeah, my reflections were something similar. It was, um, I think, you know, we've seen a lot written by various different um, health commentators or think tanks or anything like that about... um, you know, um, the skills and how we can distribute those skills across um, the the health service rather than working in those silos. But the Nightingale was where I truly saw that happen and happen in an incredibly quick and dynamic way. And it's for that exact reason why you said it was people wanted to come up and wanted to help and said, these were the skills that I have to offer. And then they said, put me wherever you can, put me wherever I can help. And that was fantastic because it meant that we were distributing all different professions as long as they had the skills and the competencies to deliver those roles with the appropriate governance in place. That's what that's where they were finding themselves and they were finding um, they, they're really discovering this ability to collaborate greater than, you know, any previous roles had allowed them to do so because of, you know, a very, very challenging situation. So that was the first thing for me. The second thing was the, the, just the sheer pace and the dynamism of, of, of overcoming some incredibly significant challenges and things that we can do when we work together, just when we work together, because there was nothing that, that was not able to be overcame. And, you know, you'll, you'll recollect more than most, we had, you know, some skills deficits at times because we couldn't get the right people at the right time in the right places, which we overcome very quickly, logistical issues, governance issues, you know, the, the quality learning mechanisms that I think were implemented um, incredibly quickly were, were fantastic um, to be able to provide good levels of safety. Um, and so for me, I just thought that was awe-inspiring just to be able to do that in the space of, like you said, seven days, getting the right, just getting some fantastic innovation by, by dedicated professionals was, um, was wonderful. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, some of the misconceptions, like there was loads of, like you said, highly skilled critical care nurses and, um, you know, that, that just wasn't the case. And it was definitely running on like very minimum staffing and this is when and I think anyone that worked there anyone that worked there clinically whether it be a nurse or a doctor absolutely um would showcase and shout about the added impact of HPs in an organization like that where you're pulling people with skills to help cover and you know the the ultimate thing was to always keep, keep it safe and um and make sure of that and then be honest when it wasn't safe and say okay we need to stop we need to slow down here so yeah I would totally agree with that and you know as as students or you know as newly qualified it's about looking for those experiences or looking for them opportunities to learn different skills because you just never know when they might be needed You, you never know when they might come into action and I think sometimes we like to sit within my little safety zone don't we and the thought of, you know, like that paramedic student saying, well, actually, for one or two days, I'm going to take this opportunity to go somewhere that I would never normally go, never normally have an experience with, but I'm just going to put myself out there. And that's being brave and being bold, isn't it, even as a student. And this is what the next generation leaders are going to be like, because hopefully people like you, people like me, are going to give people permission to go out there and say, okay, this maybe isn't the normal way we've done it, or, the, you know, the way we've done it previously, but yeah, of course, if you want to do that, of course, go and do that now is the time. I think when I think of some of the, 
you know, no's I've had in my career. Oh, no, you can't do that. That's not your role. Or no, you can't do that. That's not what we do here. And I just kind of rebel. So I'm quite like confident with things like that. And I'll just be a disruptive force, which hasn't always been good. And it hasn't always been kind. Um, so now I like reflect on that and think, why was I frustrated by that? I was frustrated because I wanted to learn because I wanted new experiences and somebody held us back and I couldn't understand why. So again, part of the thing I like to say, like from a leadership, from a management perspective is just enable people, like let them, don't clip their wings, let them fly. But sometimes you just have to, you know, rein them in a bit or you have to call them back down um but that's the thing about individuality and that's the thing you know where um innovation comes from um and this when we sense check our services all the time and we're thinking is that the right way to do that if a student comes up and says you know have you ever thought about doing it like this so many educators about this so many managers would be like no we do it this way because it's the best way um and I think if empowering students you know I'm honorary student president at the moment of the the CSP students and you know, I absolutely love it because they're constantly, like, challenging me. And I done my first Insta Live, like, a few weeks ago, well, during the pandemic, and that was an experience. So, yeah. So how do we how do we do that more? How do we promote that? You know, I think you, I've had a relatively similar experience where, you know, I've been really keen to develop and to, um, you know, to innovate. Um, it's been challenging. How do we... How do we make? How do we create the right environment um, to make sure that we welcome that challenge, um, not just as AHPs but in general within within our roles? Oh, I mean that's a great question. I think um, so. We've probably all been in the situation that we've had that manager um, where they are kind of they it's control, it's command and control, and being a, in a position of power. Um, they all, they value, you know, they, that's their recognition, that's their status, that's their, um, you know, how they value themselves. But that kind of autocratic environment doesn't allow individuality. And this is the same type of environment, you know, we're doing a lot of work around equality and diversity and inclusion at the moment. That's the type of environment where people can't be their authentic self. And this is where the barriers come in. So it's maybe when you have that manager, and I think back, and some I think, you know, I probably tried to challenge that myself as an individual. And when you lower down the banding, um, you know, that sometimes isn't very successful because they have power, they have positional power, and it'll just work against you. So it's a collective movement. It's reflection. It's having open discussion sessions with, like, managers hosting open discussion sessions to say what works really well in here, what doesn't, what opportunities can we have? And it being a collective voice rather than just one person. So that would definitely be my insight. And then just like into collaboration. So between teams, so whether that be nursing, you know, like different AHPs, whether it be support workers, you know, it's about just having those spaces where like organic conversations can happen. Because some of the best ideas and some of the best learnings are just through having conversations. Um, yeah. And yeah. So that that would be my that would be my point. And do you know the SWOT rounds? I don't know if anyone you've heard of the SWOT yeah, rounds. Yeah. So the SWOT rounds are an idea that came about where you just get everyone basically in the hospital or within an organisation to feed something back, a case situation, and then you discuss it. And the amount of because people are coming with you in the same situation with very different lenses, the how people interpret that situation or what people would have done or how they would have acted or what they would have added on 
brings such diversity of thought. So that's a great example where, and you don't have to contribute, you can listen. And if you want to contribute, you can. Because, you know, learning and action, there's so many different ways to do that. It's not just about experiential learning, it's about sitting back and reflecting on maybe what someone else has learned and think, I've learned because someone else learned that. So. Yeah, I mean, I. I... Couldn't agree more. I subscribe to so much of, of what you say. I think um, one of the biggest challenges, but what I think one of the most important things in my previous role has been, you know, trying to create and foster that environment, that positive um, and supportive environment to allow people to 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 feel comfortable, to be able to challenge and to be able to give an opinion. Um, you know, too often I think in in some of my previous experiences, it's a bit like, okay, well, if you want to if you want to share. Um, nothing too contentious then that's okay but that's not where we make the innovation that's not where we inspire the change to make to make things you know truly special in, in my view um, and I think you know one of the responsibilities I see as a, as a as a leader is being able to to do as much as as I can for um, whether it be students whether it be other professionals to, to feel comfortable enough to do that and to welcome that challenge and that, that it's never easy is it to, to hear some negative things and whether it be a reflection about you know perhaps I think you could have done this better it's never easy but that's but that's where we get that continuous improvement and if we want to strive to deliver the best that's that's something that we need to overcome isn't it absolutely um, yeah, yeah. so um, BTS president-elect for 2021 tell us a bit more about that yeah, so um, I've been a member of the British Thoracic Society for a number of years now, a long, long time, and had previous positions there, such as sitting on council um, and um, some of the specialist advisory groups. And, you know, you, you can do fixed terms um, within most societies, and the BTS is one of them. So in this, in this new role that I've took on, and with my experience of other roles, so I've been really fortunate to be in other, you know, chair positions and sit on boards and trustees and yeah, I um, thought, well, if there's ever going to be a time that there's an AHP, a president of the biggest, you know, respiratory society we have in the UK, it's going to be this year when the recovery and rehabilitation is so important. And um, yeah, that was one of the main drivers for being nominated. And also, there's a fabulous, he just happens to be Geordie, um, <laughs> president coming in um, in December called Dr. Graham Burns. And he is a massive advocate for HP, in particular physiologist, um, but massive advocate. And he was a really nice, down to work fellow. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be someone who's personal medicine, because like non professors, you know, it's. Um, can feel a little bit lonely can't it in in those areas and um, and I think one of the one of the challenges for for us as AHPs is you know because um, we need to increase the number of AHPs that we have in those CD leadership positions um, 
we don't really have that many people that we can use as our as our personal well our, our professional support networks to be able to you know to bounce things off to bounce ideas off or if it's just a listen I've had a really tough day what what are your views on this approach and I think that's really really difficult isn't it what excites you most about that role what 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 are you most excited Oh god, okay. well, um, it's really strange because you find out like weeks before and it's involved <laughs> and then have to do a proper like release about it. Um, yeah. So I, it's going to be, um, I know it's going to be such hard work. Um, you know, it's a big time commitment, it's a big responsibility. Just the speeches I'm going to have to do. Um, the excitement, I suppose, is the overwhelming response I've had from people because we do worry about what some of the, you know, esteemed mainly like professors, you know, the research, the research guys are highly intelligent people who wonder like what they think and if it's a good idea. So I think I'm excited by the response that I've had. I think I'm excited because this really sets a scene for HPs and nurses as well. Um, as you know, as a, a, we don't want like being all come together, but it really does open the gates, doesn't it? To say, actually, if I can do it, you know, someone like me, really normal you know i haven't got loads of letters after my name um can't really speak that proper um <laughs> you know like if any if i can do stuff like this like anyone can and it's just is like hard work determination and surrounding yourself by people who are like-minded and we all support each other so yeah i think that's what i'm most excited about and let's see where the journey takes us um hopefully it'll be successful um, and hopefully we'll get more people trying to roll out this, not just within the VHS, but everywhere, you know. And I think I've seen this morning about a, um, a chief role come out in one of the ambulance services as well. So we've got some big changes to do in terms of, you know, I think the more profile we have with roles like this, with the presidential role, then us getting a seat at the director level table in ambulance trusts, in teaching hospitals, saying actually you need... It's not a nurse and an HP director that has to be a nurse. It's a nursing director and it's an HP director that sits at board level at the executive table. And that can be anyone. You know, that can be any of the HPs. So, yeah, I think that what excites us is the opportunities that it'll maybe create afterwards. Just, and just give everything, you know, Suzanne and the HP leadership team are doing, it gives them more examples, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, they're doing an absolute sterling job. Um, in my view, Suzanne's been wonderful. You know, she's um, I've met her a few times in my previous roles, but but the mo more exposure, the more support, um, the more examples, like I said, of best practice and how we're adding value, how we're increasing that value to patients is the better, is, is you know, is all for the better for me. Um, I was delighted when I saw your appointment. Um, and in a way, you know, I've only, I've only worked with you for that short amount of time in Nightingale, but I was also so proud, which is odd, but I think it's that bond that we've got as, as AHPs. Um, and, and it goes back to that collaboration. We can do fantastic things when we work together. And um, I was delighted. So truly, uh, congratulations from uh, from from us over here because um, you've done a you've done a phenomenal uh, a phenomenal job. I've got two Thank more you. topics to um, two more topics to cover. One of them is uh, I know that an interest of yours is AHPs in research, um, which looks incredibly exciting. I know there's a big movement on social media for that. What projects have you been working on? Uh, what, what are you aware of, or what do you think is, will be of interest for our for our, our viewers or our listeners? So it's really interested. I'm in, involved in interesting research because I've never led my own research. I'm not an academic. I was one of these students that excelled on placement and was always the last one to finish my essays and stuff. 
So I, inter- I implement the research and that's why I'm so passionate about research because I'm right at the other end. So in, in terms of research, and we did do a very, um, we've done a podcast with um, some of the, the CAFRA, you know, the, 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 the um, HP um, research um, network. And it was really just like how HPs can get into research when in opportunities they would, they would take. So for some, it's like, take COVID for an example. Um, there's lots of research going on with acute COVID, but now also with long COVID or the long-term effects. So it's building what a good research trial looks like. So you as HPs might be asked, like your opinion, do you want to come on this focus group to really help with the study design? Say, actually, this is what, this is, this is the idea we have, but we need to put it into a concept and we need to put it into a research framework, like what our aims are, what outcomes might be, why it's important to a patient. Um, and then there's obviously the doing the research, which is normally a research team. And this is when people decide they want to go for like NIHR grants or they want to maybe do their doctorate or they even just want to be involved in like a principal investigator in a site. And again, the students, like there is in terms of how much involvement you have in research can, you know, be to some degree um, decided by you. So there's a there's a big study at the minute um, that just been the funding's been agreed led by HPs looking at fatigue, and um, I knew the research team and they reached out and said, do you want to be a, a participation site for this? So then I put it out to my HPs and say, look, this is a great opportunity for someone who wants to get their foot in with research, be a principal investigator for our site. We'll have that. There's a whole research team that do the research, but what you do is identify the patients, you fill in the paperwork. Um, and you know what you do without going into too much detail you do that side of it but you're involved in that research mm. when that paper is published your name will be on it and because you've had a significant contribution yeah. and you'll get to review it you know at all stages so um, it, I'm, a, I'm probably an enabler for research and then when the research is out there then I look as a like manager of services now, um, look how I can implement that. So whether that be in like my consultant respiratory side, whether it be a new technique or an intervention. Um, and then of course comes the reflection on that. So, you know, just because research tells me that something works, you might not see that in clinical practice. And then it's actually asking why, then it's auditing and evaluating your services around that research. So yeah, and I think as HPs, we have so many research role models now, don't we? And Absolutely. back in the day when I think some of the grants were only available to doctors and nurses, and again, there's been a real push for the being open to every healthcare professional, which does it, you know, you, you wouldn't get away now as an organisation saying there's, re- there's research money here just for doctors and nurses. It just wouldn't happen. So it's a great opportunity. I mean, I am I ever going to do, like, new PhD or anything I would say very confidently no so if I ever do um, but I have got lots of friends that have done them and I'm so like inspired by them because it's hard graft isn't it it is. I, I think, you know, the thing that strikes me about, about what you've just said, though, is how important the roles are and the, the role that each AHP can play. It's not just about the, you know, the person undertaking the PhD. It's about having that support network, having the proactive managers that, you know, share that enthusiasm and will create that environment for you to allow you to do that. And I think you're right. If I reflect on, on my on my career, you know, it's not too long ago that we didn't have those things and there were consistent limitations in UA, whether that was because the grants or the funding weren't available for you. That's not the case now. And um, 
one would hope that that continues to expand and, and you know get even get better and get easier and the more that um, AHPs can be out there to support each other the more significant and uh, influential research we can mm -hmm. we can develop which is uh, which is fantastic mm -hmm. I mean the, you know part of the reason why um, I joined Huddersfield University is, is is the commitment that they've got to to supporting research in this area um, so the the paramedic practice uh, paramedic science is part of the School of Human and Health Sciences and that plays host to a, a, a huge range of uh, multidisciplinary research um, and, and you know it provides a great teaching environment. Um, it, it's committed to improving healthcare within this country but also internationally and so some of the opportunities there if anybody is interested in research and, and adopting any of those roles that you that you described or whether it's actually to do the PhD yourself please do have a look at, at Huddersfield University. I'm biased, so, you know, I'm going to say that it's great, but also the things that are out there as well, because the scholarships popping up left, right and centre now, which is, which is absolutely wonderful. I'm mindful of time. So the, the one topic that is really close to my heart, and, uh, and I know that we discussed it whilst at Nightingale, was uh, AHP resilience and wellbeing. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we spoke some length whilst at, at Nightingale about the maintenance of staff welfare and well-being. And it would seem the topic is becoming more prevalent in discussion now, which I think is great. You know, it's out there now. And the more that we speak about it, the more that we can improve it. World Mental Health Day was four days ago. So in these difficult circumstances in which we're working with uh, COVID, increased demand, increased patient expectation, how can we as individual AHPs, but then collectively as a, as a social movement, um, and, and a group of professionals help and support each other to maintain our psychological health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, that is such an important topic and such an important topic to kind of uh, leave those lasting thoughts. So um, resilience is a word. Up until last night, actually, on recorded podcast, um, I despised. I despised it because resilience in this pandemic has been forced upon healthcare workers. Mm -hmm being forced, forced upon everyone from the very acute, like from the very before the front door for you guys, to the front door, to the ward, to the critical care. To, so it's like being forced upon it, you must be resilient. If you're not resilient, you fail. If you have a wobble, you fail, you're not resilient. And so, um, but actually the context that somebody used it last night was that, you know, they've shown resilience. Um, you know, it was an HP with a disability who has been incredibly successful in their career. And I just sat back and I thought, yes, that is what resilience means. It's about, you know, us as a person, as a collective. Um, and by collectives, I mean, it may be your small team, it may be your wider team as a new department, it may be or your crew, it may be the wider team, you know, um, in terms of your directorate, and then of course your profession, and then the us as HPs. It's about how we can not just be there for each other, but how we can kind of bounce off each other. And, you know, sometimes admitting that things are getting tough, like, you know, you're not okay. People ask me if you're okay all the time, and it's that thing about, no, are you really okay? But that doesn't have to be your exact peer. That doesn't have to be someone that's on your team, on your crew. It can be anyone. So you can reach out to any healthcare professional and just say to them, you know, kind of have a chat, like, have you ever felt like this? And sometimes it's starting that conversation and the other person's like, oh my God, yeah, I feel like that all the time. Um, and it's just reaching out, I think, to people. You might say people that you see as your role models. I mean, social media is great for this because everyone's accessible. 
and you know reaching out to that person to say oh you know you you post this stuff about how it is tough for people or you know and say you know can I can I have a chat with you can I call you up like I haven't done it with a lot of people but people do reach out and I you would never you know if, if you think about those person then people you might follow on social media or the people that you might interact with they're not they're nothing to do with your work environment you don't work with them closely but that's another avenue is AHPs where we can reach out to people and say actually you kind of get this can we have a chat can we have a day there might be a text there might be an email it might be a Skype call or a Zoom call or you know um and then thinking about within your own spaces so some of the work we've done with our support groups we've done an online support group it was closed it was like Eventbrite free Eventbrite for ICU respiratory nurses and HPs and we had a hundred people there and it was a conversation me and Kate Hampton rehab legend she's a nurse um we're having in the amount of feedback we've got just by us articulating the fact that this is how we felt yes it was really shitty yeah. we'll go home and we're horrible we're horrible to our partners we're husbands we're wives whatever whoever we've got at home you know the way you speak to your person you love the most that you'd never yeah. speak to your colleague absolutely people hearing that that's normal and that's how you get out not acceptable all the time but we are where we are so yeah like just creating those spaces so either as students and just like you'll be so surprised how many people have the same anxieties, fears, concerns, gripes about each other than what we all have as humans. Something that I've spotted in, in my career, which I think is, um, I'd love to be able to look into it a little bit more, is um, what, what does success or failure look like for us at work? And often what I find, because we're so dedicated as NHS professionals, we can often adopt those system-wide indicators as an indicator of whether I, you know, as a, as a clinician or as a professional, I might am being successful. And in the environment of that increased demand and these increased challenges, that can have some, some perverse effects. So, you know, let's take, for example, if, if um, from an ambulance perspective, um, some of the, um, the ambulance dispatchers that have been inundated with calls will leave a shift feeling they've failed because they don't have any more ambulances to send. It's not the fact that they've done the best job, made the best decision, sent the right resource to the right patients. It's the fact that we feel that we should do more. And, and I think we need to do something to perhaps counter that because that's something that I see across the whole healthcare spectrum. You know, we all want to do more. That's why we do what we do. We want to offer the very best, but at times we can't do that. And I think that that strategy that you mentioned about talking to your peers, talking to your um, your colleagues, talking to anybody else from a multidisciplinary perspective to say, I just I felt this shit today because I wanted to do more and I couldn't. We need to do that so much more because that's not your fault. You've done a, a fantastic job. You've done everything you possibly could do. Nobody could ask any more of you. Absolutely agreed. And it's knowing your boundaries, your limitations of you as a person rather than the system as well. And you know, I, you know, I've achieved a lot in my career, many people have, but the people I surround myself with, you judge success more about how, what people think about you in terms of being nice and kind and considerate, the human values that we all like and appreciate, and what you want to see in others, so I've learned my biggest lessons from the people that I don't want to be, because I think I never want their attributes, I never want to be like that, I never want to make someone feel like how you just made me feel, so I'm going to take that from you. And I'm going to use it as a real positive and I'm going to be the person that you're not. So if any of you have experienced stuff like that before, you can really turn it into a positive and you can smile and be courteous 
And as you climb the ladder, you bring other people up with you. You don't be one of these people that keep the class ceiling and keep everyone below you. And that would be my probably my biggest advice for that. And if you do that, you will be happy. You know, you will be happy and you'll already be happy in your team and you can work anywhere. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the last question that I was going to ask is, you know, what advice do you have for for people that are fresh that have just joined, you know, joined this group? So welcome to all of the new AHPs. You know, we I'm I'm delighted, I'm sure you are to to, to have to have you with us. Would would that be the piece of advice you'd offer to them? Yeah, just always be kind. And I was asked this on this Insta Live I talked about, and what would you do differently in your leadership career? And it would just always be kind, even when you're under pressure, even when you're so frustrated by the system or a person, just be kind, always be driven, and you'll get there. You know, hard work, dedication, but we do need to equal the playing field for a lot of people within our profession. That's um, race, gender, sexuality. This, you know, we are, you know, we, we do have problems in our professions. And if everyone took the responsibility to learn more about different ethnicities and cultures, you know, sexualities, um, you know, gender orientation, like, then it's each page we need to take the responsibility for that. So get out there, learn, listen, go and reach out to people from diverse backgrounds. Um, and you know, have those conversations. Have, How has yeah. it been for you? That's that's what I was going to say. Be brave. Have those conversations. You know, talk about it and, and approach it with that with that view of wanting to learn. Ask the question. Don't give the answer. Ask the question. Um, I think is something that um, that has always served me very well. Uh, I'm mindful of time. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been absolutely great to catch up with you. Um, just want to offer a couple of uh, members of staff thanks for for allowing the today's session to go ahead. Uh, Leisha Yang, uh, Dr. Leanne Monchuk, who's the co-director of external engagement, Nicola Werritt, and um, and yourself, Rachel Moses. Thank you so much, and uh, I look you. forward to speaking to you again soon. Definitely. Take care.